So I thought we could begin tonight with um, singing, if you like, um, this time in English. Um, And it's a reflection on the teaching that I gave after lunch about impermanence and that when the mind is steady and still, the perception of the fleeting nature of things can impress itself more deeply on us. Um, in such a way that can tenderize the heart and begin to free the mind from our grip on trying to make the world work for us. And when the grip is more released, the, the response and action in response to this delicate, fragile, fleeting existence, our response can be uh, freer. So this is taken from um, the Diamond Sutta, uh, from uh, the Mahayana tradition, um, if that means anything to you. Um, and I'll give you the words in English. Are um, So it's a, a kind of an imperative to us. It says, Oh, you should see this fleeting world, a drop of dew, a bubble on a stream, Lightning in a summer cloud, a phantom and a dream. I just want to say that philosophically it's not saying the world isn't real, not at all. It's comparing it, comparing our existence inner and outer to something that um, has a kind of lightness in it which uh, we can experience sometimes in practice, we can experience sometimes at thresholds of life where we know we can't hold on. You know, birth, death, this um, beautiful, mysterious, and very insubstantial existence. So I'll, we'll do the melody, and then when you get it, Um, Feel free to embellish the melody if you wish, but mostly let it be a contemplation that can resonate with where you know this deep in your being. It's a very easy melody, actually, guys. Oh, you should see this fleeting world, a drop of dew. A bubble on a stream Lightning in a summer cloud A phantom and a dream So you can see the melody's not very complex, but the words are hard, right? You should see this fleeting world compared to a drop of dew. You know, this beautiful little ball of... Reflection and refraction. A drop of dew, a bubble on a stream, lightning in a summer cloud, a phantom in a dream. Okay. Oh, you should see this fleeting world, a drop of dew. A bubble on a stream Lightning in a summer cloud A phantom and a dream No, you should see this fleeting world A drop of dew, a bubble on a stream, lightning in a summer cloud, a phantom and a dream. should see this fleeting world, 
drop of June, a bubble on a stream, a lightning in a summer cloud, a phantom and a dream. This fleeting world, a drop of dew, a bubble on a stream, a lightning in a summer cloud, a phantom and a dream. No, you should see this fleeting world, a drop of dew, a bubble on a stream, a lightning in a summer cloud. A phantom and a dream. No, you should see this fleeting world. A drop of dew. A bubble on a stream. Lightning in a summer cloud, a phantom and a dream. No, you should see this fleeting world, a drop of dew, a bubble on a stream lightning in a summer cloud a phantom and a dream no you should see this fleeting world a drop of juice a bubble on a stream, lightning in a summer cloud, a phantom and a dream. No, you should see this fleeting world. A drop of Thank you for joining in so wholeheartedly, whole bodily. <laughs> and the reflection, the intention on the reflection on impermanence is um, to point to this aspect of experience to help us release our grip. So we can be more free to love what we love and 
Well, what else do we do? Want to do apart from love what we love? <laughs> what else do you want to do? Anything else? So thank you for the questions. Some questions were on the board. And uh, I'll do my best to respond. And then I have a, a few reflections for us, if we have time. They kind of fit with your questions, of course. The other ear works better. Let's see. Mm. I have quite small ears. <laughs> okay, squeeze it, turn it. Okay, can you still hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah? Good. Okay. Yeah? Oh, needs to be. It's down here. <laughs> okay, that, oh, that's good, isn't it? Is that good? Yeah, I can, I can hear that. But thanks, Bill. Thank you. Um, so I was going to try and weave your questions around a, a framework, if possible, we'll see how it goes, about insight. Um, and this is, tradition is called insight meditation. And I spoke a little bit about one avenue of insight after lunch today. Um, but I'd like to offer a framework about three levels of insight if I can tonight. And broadly speaking, the first level is insight into, into ourself. Self-knowledge, getting to see a little bit more about who's sitting here. Um, so we could say personal insight. A second level of insight would be not personal. It's more universal. Characteristics that we share with everything and everyone and everything that arises, which is really the Buddha's gift, a big, huge part of his gift and offering for us to really have a technology to really uh, look into that and see that in a way that, as I said before, we can take our hands off and respond. And the third level, I would say, is insight into what is uh, not conditioned, what is un unmade, not conditioned, and maybe we'll get there. Um, <clears throat> so, um, let's see. First, first question. Uh, could you please speak a little about where the self does reside, if we are not the mind, etc.? I think it resides up here somewhere. Okay. Any tips, Bill? Just the squeezing and the... <laughs> Perfect position, but the ear feels tenuous. Okay. Can you please say a little about where the self does reside if we're not the mind, etc.? Um... So a couple of things about the question. Um... One is the, 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 the sense that pretty much all of us have that there is a self and it must reside somewhere because we, ex we experience ourselves as someone. And if I'm not the thoughts and I've found that out and I'm not the feelings and I'm not the <laughs> sensations, then where is this sense that is really clearly me? Where is it? And it's a really, really important question. Um, that searching, in a sense, that searching for, for self. Where is it? What is it? Hopefully I'm going to speak a little bit more about how we can look at that from a purely doctrinal point of view. Actually, not just purely doc doctrinal, but from a doctrinal point of view. Um, The answer would... I don't know how the Buddha would respond to this question. He had a whole different way, different set of ways he responded to questions. And sometimes he wouldn't respond to questions. He said there's questions that lead onward and there's questions that clarify and there's questions that, that lead uh, to more confusion and I don't answer those kinds of questions. 
I don't know if it's one of those. I don't think it is, but I just want to give you some of his uh, options. It's a really, it's a, it's a doctrinally, um, one of the gifts of these, uh, the Buddha's teaching is that he really points to seeing, right, I'm not this, and I'm not this, and I'm not the thoughts, and I'm not the feelings, and I'm not even the awareness that sees the feelings. And then the question comes, so where am I? Who am I? Right? The classical spiritual question. Hopefully, yeah, as I keep saying, I'll get there. Um, the short answer would be, you don't and you aren't. <laughs> right? Uh, no, loca- no location. Uh, but it needs more expanding than that. That would be too simple. So this search, this instinctual search for who I am, where am I, my identity, the sense of identity, where, where can I be located, where can I be found, is one that we will see in ourself on retreat, even if it doesn't arise with that vocabulary or language. This whole one level of the sense of self, the first level of insight, we will start to see ourself here this sense of myself. Have you seen yourself here? What do I mean by that? I mean those senses in when you're sitting on your cushion and there's a very strong sense of I am. I, I, I. Big sense of I've, whatever it is, I've had enough. I'm not going to do another one of those silly things where you have to move your hands around. I, I, what kind of eyes, I ams have arisen for you these days? I am <coughs> sick of meditation. Um, I'm in love with meditation. I'm, I'm, I'm never listened to. No one ever gets me. People always look at me funny in the corridor. What is it about me? It must be something wrong with me. So when the, the strong language of I and me and mine is arising, we could say that the sense of self in that moment is being located. We're seeing ourself. And if we hang out with our heart and mind long enough, and there's enough samatha, enough presence and stability, we'll see that that whole pattern arises and that other times it's not here at all. What seemed so strong and solid and, you know, one moment I was really in love with everybody in the hall. It felt really true. My love was boundless and that's who I am. And two hours later, I'm ready to pack my bags. Don't want to see another person in Devon ever, right? And that feels like ultimate truth. So searching for ourself, we can see our seeking for ourself in many ways here. I remember... Um, okay, so another answer to this question is that, yes, there is a sense of self, absolutely. But from the Buddha's point of view, he said this too is impermanent, subject to change. There's not an ultimate location for this sense of self. It arises due to conditions. It arises out of the totality and it arises in relation to other and self arises in relation to other and it fades away again when the conditions are no longer there to support it. So an example is that a mother, the sense of mother arises in relation to the child, right? There is no mother without a child. The person who is the mother, she might feel like it's who she is, but it actually arises when the conditions are there. And if there is no child, there is no mother in that moment. Similarly, (coughs) I was just reflecting on this earlier. I was thinking, what's that 
the other way around for me. And for a long time, of course, well, not of course, for a long time, I was a daughter. And I'm, I was used to being a daughter. And from the Buddha's perspective, it's not who I am. It's something that arises due to conditions. And when the conditions are no longer there to be daughter, I'm not daughter. And I hadn't even got that till today when I reflected, oh, yes, my mum also died last year. And that was my second parent to go. It's like, oh, right? I'm not a daughter. Right? You probably haven't necessarily seen me as a daughter. You've probably thought I was a teacher, <laughs> right? But if there's nobody there listening, I'm not a teacher. It's not who I am. If I go back to my siblings that are left, that are here still, sorry, go back to my family, and I ask them to reflect on impermanence and chant with me, what do you think happens? <laughs> right? No, I'm the sister. Right? But I'm not the sister either. Because when I'm not with my brothers, I'm somewhere else. And I'll arise dependent on the conditions. Now, typically, we may take our roles, uh, our, our conventional roles, as who we are. Right? And that's painful when we do. Because you may, you know, it's not just those familial roles or those other pieces. It's, it's kinds of ways we show up. Let's say we are someone who, I'm, I'm really a good person. That's who I am. And I always help people. Come on retreat to Gaia House and nobody wants your help. Unless you're here at my end, right? And sometimes it can be really difficult to come to a place where our familiar senses of self aren't reflected back to us. Right? I'm a really friendly person. That's who I am. But nobody wants to smile at me today. So I don't get to be and fulfill that sense of myself. There's a reason we make it like that here. It will make those things that we have taken to be me, we'll see that if the conditions are not there to support that, there is no helper without the one who wants to be helped. Let's say you're the, always the joker in the crowd. You have a hard time here, right? <laughs> it's like, come on guys, lighten up. We're going to have a good time. Right? There might be impermanence, but there's also a really good time. Come on. You know, so we might be like dying to kind of whip us all into having a little bit of fun here because that's how we know ourselves to arise. So this is really, really poignant. This, the, the, there is, we could say, from the Dharma perspective, ultimately there is not one sense of self, a sense of self that is abiding, that has a little I am in the middle on a little box, and there it is. Sense of self arises due to conditions and passes due to conditions. If we cling to that sense of self when those conditions are not here, we suffer. If we cling to that sense of self when the conditions are here, we suffer, right? Let's say I'm the teacher, just pretend. <laughs> Let's say I'm the teacher and um, you, or, uh, anyone who's been a school teacher will know this. It's much easier in a, a, a class like this where everyone's really listening, right? But let's say you, you, here I am, the teacher, and you, uh, you just all walk out. Maybe you've thought about it, <laughs> right? If I think I'm the teacher, what's going to happen? Could be a number of things, couldn't it? If there aren't the supports for that sense of self, I will suffer. Right? And the Buddha's really pointing to this to say, you're not, how you, you're not ultimately who you arise in social convention, in terms of the kind of qualities you have. He said, free that up. Free that up a little bit. So on retreat, we might see this. And I'll give a, another example. Um, one of my... Yeah, she's a friend of mine. Um, <clears throat> she and her husband would come, they were from America, and 
North America, and she <coughs> and he would come every summer to Gaia House for a whole month's retreat in June at Gaia House when it was a little centre, when it was still a cottage industry um, in a village over there, a little place. And uh, she, of course, on retreat with her husband, as someone mentioned on the first night, actually on, from the retreat perspective, I'm not really a wife, am I? Because I'm here as a meditator. Sure, I have the convention and I'll, you know, go back to the person at the end, all being well. Right? But actually, here, here and now, it's a meditator that's arising, perhaps, or you know, someone who's doing their work. And at the end of this month retreat one year, it was a June back in maybe 1996, no, three, somewhere a long time ago. Um, she was in a sharing circle at the end of the retreat, and she was laughing her head off. And she had the really, really distinctive laugh. She still does. <coughs> you wouldn't miss it. And um, this particular June, it had rained every day uh, here in Devon. And in those days, I think it's still the case, the, if you were on retreat for a very long time, the staff, our dear coordinators, wash your laundry for you. Um, and there's no tumble dryer well, there wasn't then, and I think now it's, you know, it's, for whatever reasons, hang the laundry outside. That laundry was there for a long time that June. I think the household coordinator was a little bit overworked. We only had four coordinators, and the laundry stayed out quite a while. Sometimes it went back in and went out the next day, the same laundry, and got wet again and stayed out, you know. It was a bit like that. <clears throat> anyway, she, she was laughing her head off at the end of the retreat in a group. She goes, ah. Oh self she was laughing in the kind of wisdom you can have in retrospect (laughs) right you know there's wisdom that comes in retrospect even after things you know sometimes it's years later we go oh yeah right she said i found myself in those periods you know between formal practice when there's nothing to do i was just wandering around aimlessly looking around for something to do you know so no reading no writing no one to entertain you it's like kind of have you wandered around the house sort of looking for something <laughs> at all? So this is what she did. But she didn't know she was doing it. We only wake up when we wake up. She didn't know. She said she was wandering around and she kept finding herself in the garden, because even though it was raining and well, it was a wet June, standing at the washing line. Not quite knowing why she was there, but just, you know, when we're wandering around, you know when we're not mindful... You know those moments? <laughs> no. <laughs> right, as one of my teachers used to say, do you want to know what's happening when you're not mindful? Usually there's quite a bit of self going on. Right? So anyway, she was kind of wandering around, hanging around the washing line, and then she'd sort of feel a bit better, and then she'd carry on and go and do her meditation. She said the third day, she was standing at the washing line, and she realized she was next to her husband's jeans. Oh, it's touching, isn't it? It's really touching. They were probably a bit wet. And and then she realized, oh my goodness, I think that's my husband. You know, on some level, looking, that seeking for comfort, that seeking of the reaffirmation of wife, in a way, someone tell me who I am here, at least smile at me, at least leave me a note on the board. You know, something to reflect me. And she laughed, you know, because she could see the poignancy and the pain in it. Um, but the, the way that we seek to know ourselves through objects, even when that role actually isn't supported anymore. It's, it's a very poignant one. I, for myself, uh, have any of you noticed this? Or do you think this is very odd? what I told you about her. If you hang out with your mind long enough, if you haven't yet, if you, don't, if you think this is odd, you haven't hung out with your mind long enough. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, similar, similar, actually, on a long retreat here, looking for just that, that hungry, hungry spirit, hungry ghost, looking for some kind of somebody 
tell me who I am. You know that, um, I'm just digressing a little bit, there's a Dr. Zeus, you know, Dr. Zeus wrote these great children's books in the 50s, 60s maybe. Um, they usually have a kind of moral message and they have great cartoons and pictures and they're very lovely. And there's one called, Are You My Mother? And it's this little duck, is it a duck? Chick, some kind of chick who's kind of fallen out of the nest or something and he's, she, they, wandering around, seeking, seeking, in this case for mother, so that he can be okay. And he goes up to all kinds of pieces of equipment like, you know, bulldozers and tractors and cranes and other animals. Are you my mother? Are you my mother? The seeking. It's very, if we let ourselves feel it as well as see it, it's very touching, this searching, this human searching for some kind of knowledge about who I am. So in this example, from myself uh, wandering around here, and um, hungry, hungry for something. That's pretty universal, I think. Human heart, hungry for something. And I found myself, similar to Tony, she was called, in that washing up area here. And it's different now, I think, because there's a new machine there. But there used to be a bucket still there with the old tea towels in. They are. Oh, phew, that's good. <laughs> good, I still exist. Um, the, the, I had been on staff at the old guy house, a coordinator, and I had got one of those five-litre tubs and written in red pen, used tea towels. So it still says that, something like that, doesn't it? It's not my handwriting anymore, 20 years later. But on that retreat, I was just standing by the bucket. I wrote that. <laughs> No Facebook to check, no texts in those days, no nothing to reflect myself. No one was interested. No one was there. I was telling myself. (laughs) And it's funny, isn't it, after the event? But in that moment of that seeking, of looking for ourself, it's really, it's really, it's universal in a sense. Someone wrote a note about, let's see, where is it? Um, Not sure how to deal with self-doubt. Self-doubt. So doubt as one of the hindrances, doubt as one of the um, um, tricky mind states to work with. Doubt, from the Buddha's point of view, is sometimes he referred to it as, along with the other hindrances or the things that assail us and get us off track in a way, he referred to this as Mara. And Mara is a kind of image or personification of delusion. Delusion. Anything that arises and deludes us into thinking we're any particular one thing, so self-doubt, as painful as it is, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense of um, I am in it, which isn't wrong, but we want to see it. And there's ways we can work with that. In the story, in the myth, and the story of the Buddha's awakening, as he took his seat under the tree, and made his resolution like I'm going to sit here till I can realize, like so I can realize what's possible to know for a human being. In making that commitment, he was visited by Mara. In fact, he was visited by Mara many, many times. Different kinds of Maras: Mara of doubt, Mara of you know inner critic. Who do you think you are, thinking you can sit there and be free? What do you think you're doing? All right. His clarity, his mindfulness of body, his determination, his seeing in that moment was so clear. Mara arose. But he said, I, I see you. I 
see you, Mara. Even after awakening, I believe, Mara arises, but it doesn't take hold. That the seeing, the knowing that we're working with, that can deepen and widen and brighten such that we become slowly or quickly less and less identified with the contents, caring for them, absolutely, that's where the compassion deepens. His was such that he could see. So the pers- for the person that wrote that note and anybody else, here's a piece um, from the teachings I like very much. <clears throat> about mindfulness of body. So we're wondering why we're doing all this mindful... Well, maybe you're not wondering. Why are we doing all of this emphasis on body? So much emphasis on mindfulness of body. Again and again. Oh, give me a break. Right? So much emphasis on the presence, the uh, filling out with attention and awareness, the perception of body. And he's giving a metaphor here for... um, the relationship of mindfulness of body and being assailed by difficult mind states called Mara. He says, suppose there was a dry, sapless piece of wood and a man came with, a, with an upper fire stick. I don't know what an upper fire stick is. It must have been something from ancient India. Do anyone know what an upper fire stick is? An Oh, is it that? Ah. Okay, very good. Thank you. And supposing a man came with an upper fire stick, here's our man with the upper fire stick, (laughs) thinking, thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. What do you think, bhikkhus? Bhikkhus are the monks. What do you think? Could the man with the fire stick light a fire and produce heat by rubbing the dry, sapless piece of wood with an upper fire stick? What do you think, everybody? (laughs) Were you listening? Could he? Yes. Yes, venerable sir. So too, because when anyone has not developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body, Mara finds an opportunity and a support in him. Can you see that? When the body isn't filled with sap, we've been doing a lot of this, the fluid body coming in, the awareness fully, 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 Mara has less chance to take hold. Mara isn't some other, it's not like a kind of devil character on the other side. It's, it's the, the delusion of, of clinging to the mind states. Here's the good news. Suppose there was a wet, sappy piece of wood and a man with an upper fire stick came thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. What do you think, Bikus? Could the man light a fire and produce heat by taking the upper fire stick and rubbing it against the wet, sappy piece of wood? (laughs) Good student. No, venerable sir. No. So too, because when anyone has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body, Mara cannot find an opportunity or a support in them. So that's one way of working with doubt is keeping on with our deepening in mindfulness of body and there's another note which will pertain to this too <coughs> could you say something about the role of seeking cultivating observing the positive wholesome without necessarily clinging to it there's a lot of scientific allegedly evidence of doing just that especially because of the brain's negativity bias etc So whilst trying to meet experience as it unfolds, whatever it is, I hope it's okay to search and you know, cultivate, choose the um, the positive and the good, the pleasant. It can be without clinging. Yes. So absolutely, this is also part of the support and the resource. Um, for our practice of working with the tricky things, the delusions, the things where we take hold of a sense of self as who I am. Um, Very, very much so. 
I think it was really clear in the path that we cultivate the wholesome, the beautiful, the beneficial, the uplifting. Or, you know, in fact, it's very relatively recent that uh, as lay people we would be given meditation retreats or instruction. But classically, the teaching for householders is cultivating the good, like it is in lots of spiritual traditions, right? Cultivate generosity, cultivate patience, cultivate honoring. All of these beautiful, beautiful qualities. Yes, absolutely. Also, meditatively, cultivating states of wholeness, concentration, absorption, jhanas. All of this makes a positive impact imprint in the citta, in the psyche. Um, so that this piece of wood has more resources, more roots, more sap, more beauty, that we're not so taken by um, the gut reflex to grip onto a feeling, hoping that it's me, thinking that it's me. Where am I? Who am I? This feeling arises, oh, this is who I am. Are you my mother? This mind state of anger arises, oh, this is who I am. Right? Because the knee-jerk grip, like a gut reflex, takes hold and uses that as a reflection and evidence of who I am. So yes, cultivating the beautiful, um, beautiful, wholesome states, absolutely. And the pleasure that's in them. The, the wholesome states tend to be more pleasurable. Um, they tend to, to conduce to more expansion and ease and pleasure. You know, you know this. This is not an esoteric teaching. If we're generous, it feels good. It feels good. Not, not out of compulsion or having to be good. That's different have to be good. That's coming out of your inner critic. I should be good. That doesn't feel so pleasant. Generosity. Yeah, you can have what I have. You all know that. I'm just reminding you. So studying the self, we get to that self-knowledge comes more so that when I am practicing and I see that I'm triggered by something someone says or does or doesn't do and I feel that shape, that familiar patterning of someone's got to do something. Ah, I get it. I see you. Here's the one who is enraged, let's say. Not making it her wrong. Contracted mind as contracted mind. Remember this instruction this morning. Softening, widening. Yeah, but somebody has to... Okay, maybe somebody does have to, but do you want to soften first? But if somebody has to make a response, somebody has to do something about this, yes, maybe they do. But who's suffering right now? Okay. And then there might be a response rather than the reaction. Then Master Dogen said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to become intimate with all beings. And it continues. 
So we study the self. And then I'll move to this uh, second level of insight that's more universal. (coughs) How do we forget the self? Not by annihilating self. This is not a teaching of self-annihilation or even rising above. It's not that kind of transcendence. It's a transcending sendere. It means to climb. You don't only climb up. We climb wider. We see what's here and we see that this that appears to be me is impermanent. It too is like a bubble on the stream. If I widen around it, wow, that too arises due to conditions and passes. This too is not me or mine, because if it was me or mine, I would either be able to have mastery over it, right, and make it do what I told it to do. Can you make your one of these do what you tell it to do? (laughs) There's a lovely quote from Gandhi, apparently, where he says something like, my first foe and the one I have the most success with is my old friend, the British Empire. He said, and the second who I have a little more trouble with is the Indian people. He said, but my most forbiddable, formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little control. He <laughs> has <laughs> some sense of humor about this um, predicament. And he was a very disciplined man, right? He's not shy of discipline, but he's also seeing that this sense of self too belongs to the nature of things. It arises when the conditions are there, it passes. It's not who and what I am. And if I think it is who and what I am, I will suffer. Because the nature of things does not support this as a permanent home. So this is this um, universal level of insight. Impermanence not self, to be able to see that whatever arises is not me or mine in any abiding, ultimate, final way. It's not me or not mine. And this, if I take it as such, there is dukkha, there is suffering, there is an existential pain from grasping hold of anything, to push it away or to try and keep it. So these three, impermanence, not self, and dukkha, the existential pain, he said, we can look into this. You can be, you can be free in relation to phenomena because the biggest delusion is to think things are permanent even though we know they're not permanent in our head, we're relating to them as if they are. Do you? Like your mind states, especially the difficult ones. I think it's amazing how when a difficult mind state arises, it feels like the truth. It's like, oh no. Let's say it's... um, What's your most difficult one <laughs> these days? Let's say it's um, <coughs> some kind of frustration, let's say, some kind of like that. Nah, nah. When that arises, without any training, we're just in it. We're in the story of what we're frustrated about and somebody's got to change and it's not... And it feels like it's going to be there forever. It feels like an ultimate truth about me and the situation. Right? It's going to last forever. And then we despair and then we build up a a further story of, oh no, this frustration is going to be here forever. Meditation tools say, look a bit closer. What can you see about this frustration? There's the level of the story. There's the level of the, usually the contraction, the heat, the scratchiness. We can get really precise. Can you get really curious about frustration? Frustration, I have discovered, 
when you come close. Sometimes it feels like sandpaper inside your soul. Sometimes it feels like barbed wire. It can have this edgy, hot, piercing, rubbing quality to it. When you come to know it at that level, you get interested. It's not me or mine. Wow, sandpaper. How did that get there? Sandpaper, what's a skillful response to sandpaper? Oh, wow. Oh, this hurts. When we can perceive the suffering in it, it's a doorway for the compassion to arise, the self-compassion. I read recently somebody say, self-compassion begins... say self-compassion begins when we recognize just how much we don't want to be here self-compassion begins when we recognize just how much we don't want to be here and you might think no I want to be here yes but again what's happening in all those moments you're not here (laughs) there's a there's a momentum sometimes a way from full, fully being here, fully knowing, fully opening, fully recognizing the intimacy with all things. Do you like the sound of intimacy with all things? <laughs> I mean, this is all things. It's not just like cozy intimacy with rabbits. <laughs> this is intimacy with all things. That's the proposition. I think that's really what the Buddha is expressing. The Buddha, historical Buddha, but the Buddha as the awakening, the awakened aspect. Intimacy with all things. And why he, they, she can be intimate. (coughs) Because they're not taking all things personally to be who they are. So part of our practice, I see it, actually we're widening our capacity for all things. Rabbits, barbed wire, the way something impacts us so deeply at times that it's hard to bear, our capacity to bear with this world of incredible beauty and, and also incredible devastation and need. Are we, are we the feeling of love? It's a question in response to the first question. Are we the feeling of love? And then there's a follow-up question. How can we express ourselves from this place? From knowing this quality of love. How does one express oneself from there? Are we this feeling of love? the Buddha (laughs) there's something I think we recognize in the question that we do recognize something about love is closer to what we are I think from a Dharma perspective it wouldn't just be the feeling of love because feelings might come and go but the intention of love the impulse towards love the willingness to act in love One thing I find useful from the Buddha's teaching, he said, it's clear that, he 
He said, we can know where we are and we can know how we are. But anything in the mind that tries to define what you are, that's Mara. We can know where we are. I can know how I am in this moment. But anything in the mind that tries to say what I am, I am the feeling of love. Anything that tries to claim what we are is Mara. He said, no thing whatsoever, no single thing, not even love, no thing whatsoever, even though we instinctually recognize that love is so close to home. No thing whatsoever must be taken as the final definition of who and what I am. But the love, we recognize it, we respond to it, we grow, we flourish when love is available and how does one express oneself from this love. I think if one is resting in that kind of knowing one is already expressing oneself just by being. And there are a million ways to express our love, which I'm sure you all do in small and big ways all the time. Maybe we'll pick that up in the closing talk tomorrow about expressing our action, expressing ourselves in in action. I think I'll um, finish. I think I... I think I mostly responded somewhat to those questions. Um, I didn't get to the third level of insight. Um, maybe, maybe we can just sit with that as the ending. This pointing, this pointing, um, what can be could be called the deathless dimension. kind of beyond birth and death not it's, it's not um, <coughs> something far away or distant it's in a sense closer to us than anything that arises and passes that I think we could say sometimes calls us, sometimes we have that longing for home or that longing for um, the kind of longing at the center of the human heart that, that seeks, for, seeks for rest, real rest, where we're no longer tossed about by kind of pulling and pushing at everything that comes and goes. So if you have at all that longing in your heart or that you kind of hear that whisper calling you home. Sometimes somebody once translated the word philosophy as homesickness, right? That, that longing for home. If you at all recognize that, let's end together in the silence. And rather than that sense of the longing for home, oh, it's going to be later when I've meditated more and I'm going to get there and I'll be fixed and at least I've seen impermanence. And No. See if you can draw that longing back, sense where it emanates from in your heart. Bear with that call home and let it rest in the silence. And let's end together with a minute silence together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.